The opportunity is before us tonight to turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 4. It's been a long time since we have been in Mark's Gospel and we return there this evening to discuss some things which are of paramount importance to the church. It's interesting to me to hear various sectors of the Christian church speak of what God may or may not be doing in our world. I often am the recipient of many magazine articles, many periodicals, many journals, many books that speak of what God may or may not be doing in our world at this time. Usually, they are things uh, which men are studying as to whether or not God is bringing revival in a particular land or place. Uh, it's interesting that uh, usually centering around theological seminaries or colleges, uh, there are research centers that begin and they look to see what God is doing in the world. Uh, they begin to study movements. They begin to look at uh, phenomena that seem to be happening around our globe and they often will ask uh, the question in their research is this the movement of God is this what God is doing is he working toward uh, bringing revival in this place or that place and you will even have entire ministries and organizations uh, which are raised up and funded for the purpose of studying uh, what God is doing in his kingdom and it's interesting to me that grandiose studies, uh, incredibly complex and detailed studies are often undertaken uh, that take much time and effort and money uh, to see whether or not God is working in a particular place. And it seems to me that while much of that might be uh, within the bounds of propriety, it also seems to me that some of that is somewhat misguided because all of the money and all of the time and effort that's spent on studying what is going on in the kingdom of God could be better used, I think, if people were doing what God has called us to do in the kingdom, and that is to preach the word of God and to proclaim the gospel of Christ and not necessarily studying where that effect is taking place. And that is really what Jesus himself is pointing us to in Mark's gospel, specifically chapter 4. In fact, if you were to turn to the front part of Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, you would begin to see that Jesus speaks and teaches in parables. We've already gone over uh, the first uh, 20 or so verses of Mark 4, and we begin to see that Jesus has a teaching ministry and he begins to teach in parables. And in Mark 4, he talks about the parable of the sower and the soils. He says he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd, chapter 4, verse 1, gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea and on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the Birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. 
And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus begins this chapter talking about sowing seed. And we know, of course, as he will tell us in the explanation beginning in verse 13, that he's not talking about physical soil. He's not talking about literal seed. He's talking about that which is happening in the spiritual dimension, that which is happening in our world that we might not see at first examination. In fact, he says in verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How will, you, how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown in the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. This chapter is all about sowing spiritual seed. It's about the spiritual dimension of proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And while I guess there would be some level of value and productivity in finding out what God is doing in the world as the gospel is sown as spiritual seed, one thing comes true in this chapter of Mark 4, and that is that regardless of whether or not we study these things, God is continuing to do His work. He's continuing to allow men and women to be a part of sowing spiritual seed. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus continues this this teaching, this parabolic teaching on sowing spiritual seed. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. 
with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. If one thing comes through this chapter more than anything else, Jesus, on three separate occasions, as we have read, is teaching about spiritual seed. He's talking about the dynamics of how the Word of God penetrates the human heart. And if we were to take ourselves back to this agrarian society, we would immediately begin to understand that Jesus is using the common elements of the day to talk about the kingdom of God. And as he does, he's telling us many, many things for which we must understand. In that first teaching, when he says that there'll be soil by the roadside, there'll be rocky soil and thorny soil and good soil, you know because of our past teaching times that he is saying that there will be different responses to the gospel message. We'll not always be able to ascertain completely what is going on in the human heart, but one thing is for sure, we are commanded to sow seed and God himself will produce the intended result. Here in verses 26 to 34, he talks about that same kind of seed being sown in the human heart. He talks about what it means for the kingdom of God to be likened to seed and sowing. In fact, Jesus is going to give us some profound lessons regarding what is going on in the spiritual realm that we know nothing about. It's one thing to study charts and graphs and movements and men and organizations and institutions. It's entirely another to understand our spiritual responsibility to sow seed and allow God to be concerned about the rest. In fact, I'm so often chuckling in my own mind when I read some of these accounts and so much pen and paper have been used in trying to determine exactly what God is doing when something like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John talk about these analogies which show us that sometimes in the spiritual realm only God himself knows precisely what is going on. In fact, we could outline this passage tonight, Mark 4, verses 26 to 34, in this fashion. In verses 26 to 29, we find a spiritual law, an abiding law that we could call the law of internal spiritual growth. The law of internal spiritual growth. And then as we move to verses 30 to 32, we find another law that Jesus is teaching about, the law of external spiritual growth. The first is internal the second is external. And then finally, in verses 33 to 34, he tells us about another spiritual law of the universe. We could call it the law of God's sovereign disclosure. God's sovereign disclosure. Let's talk about the first spiritual law, and let's ask ourselves the question tonight, are we called upon to study the kingdom of God to find out where God is working in our world. Notice verses 26 to 29. 
He was saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, one of the first things that you need to understand about this particular parabolic teaching of our, of our Lord is that this is the only place in the gospel accounts where this parable is recorded. And we don't have the luxury of finding out what some of the other gospel writers would have to say about this particular teaching of our Lord. Only Mark records this. And I think the reason is because what Mark is doing is presenting for us further explanation about spiritual seed and about soil. He's showing us how it is that good soil produces fruit. Let's see how it works. Notice he says that the kingdom of God is like. He's saying the kingdom of God is likened to a field. It's likened to a sower, and it's likened to seed. And the point of the parable is obvious. It's emphasizing what we could call the nature or the reign of God in the human heart. The nature or the reign of God in the human heart. He wants to show us in parabolic form that the kingdom of God is internal. It's within the heart of man. It's a man who casts seed upon the soil. Someone who is working for God in the internal realm. This is really so very simple. He's saying that a man is representative of one of the ambassadors of the kingdom. And God has given us the opportunity to take spiritual seed, the word of God, the gospel, of the proclamation of the truth. And as the sower broadcasts that seed, that's representative of someone who's witnessing, someone who's proclaiming the gospel, someone who is verb verbally articulating what it means to know Jesus Christ, to speak of the person of God himself, to talk about the cross. All of those things are indicative of the message of the kingdom. And so this man is sowing this spiritual seed, and verse 27 says, and after he has sown that seed, he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up and grows. How? He himself does not know. What's Jesus referring to? Well, having sown his spiritual seed, the farmer has done his job. He makes no further effort. He doesn't try to grow the seed himself. He doesn't attempt to do anything to the seed to make it grow because he knows he has done everything within his power and the rest is left up to a sovereign creator to cause the seed to germinate, to produce its intended result. You say, what's the point? The point is the application of the law of internal spiritual growth. You and I have a responsibility, and it isn't to always try to determine the nature of the seed being sown in the person's heart. We're not called upon by God to assess what is going on in a person's life. 
Why is that obvious? Well, because since we're not omniscient, we don't know what is going on in a person's heart. All that we are called upon by God to do is to sow spiritual seed, is to talk about Christ with other people. We're not called upon to assess their receptivity to that message. We can't know by our x-ray vision, uh, by looking into their hearts and saying, boy, this person is receptive, I'll continue to talk with them. Uh, this person is not, I'll leave him for someone else. That is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is not to, to study movements and uh, to look at places and events and to try to assess if God is working here or not working there. Our responsibility as Christians is to take the seed and sow it. That's it. We're like this farmer. We just take the Word of God that is before us and we preach the gospel message and we allow God to do His work. We cannot attempt to do His work for Him. We cannot, and therefore if we cannot, we should not. We have the responsibility to preach God's Word, and then God Himself will do His work. Notice what it says. This farmer, this man, he goes to bed at night, and when he arises in the morning, some of that seed has germinated, some of it has grown. And then, as if Mark anticipates someone's response, how? He himself does not know. We don't know what is going to be the response in the human heart. Now, to be even a little bit more practical, I'll say it this way. When you preach the gospel message, and when you do it in such a way that you know you have clearly and you have confidently shared the right kind of message, your work is done. Your work is done. You can go to bed at night. All you have to do is make sure that you clearly communicate the message itself. That's all that God expects from you and from me. I don't know about you, but that is a terribly freeing thing for me to think about. I don't have to work hard at ensuring that someone is receptive to the message. I don't have to do that. All I have to do is to make sure that I communicate the right message. See, that's my work. My work is to make sure that I'm communicating the right thing. That's why your philosophy of ministry in the local church is so very important. That's why your view of the, the true gospel of God is so very important, because that is our job. We're supposed to take the, the seed of the Word of God and to make sure that we are applying that seed accurately to the human heart. If the human heart is not receptive to such a message, that's not our doing. That's God's work. We go to bed at night. I am so very thankful that Sunday in, Sunday out, on Friday mornings when we have our doctrine and devotion time with the men, on Tuesday nights with the ladies, on other occasions, on Bible studies, in all of the various ministries of this local church, if you communicate accurately the message, you have absolutely nothing to fear. You have absolutely nothing to be concerned about whatsoever. You can pillow your head at night and you can know that God is doing His work. In fact, isn't it true sometimes that God catches all of us, myself included, up short so often? that when we continue to preach and teach and proclaim 
and speak of the truths and the riches of the Word of God that sometimes it appears as though the very people that we would assume respond positively don't respond positively. And the people that we assume are rejecting our message then turn around one day and say, it was that very thing you said, it was that very teaching time, it was that very proclamation that really turned it for me. You see, the principle that Jesus is giving us here is that there is a spiritual law within the universe that says you are responsible for sowing the seed, not the response of the hearer. God will do His work, and when we go to bed at night, He begins the germinating process, and in fact, when that, that seed sprouts and grows, sometimes it's a real shock. Sometimes it is a real shock. I mean, there have been people that I have thought of and prayed for that I, in my lack of faith, in my lack of insight, my lack of knowledge and understanding and trust, have assumed that they would never respond to the gospel message, and they responded. And others that I assumed were so close, in fact, may have prayed a prayer, may have responded initially, may have sprouted up at the beginning of that seed being sown in their heart, and then they fade away, and I say, I don't understand just don't understand how it is that person could not be responding to all of the truth set before them. And if you're not careful, you're going to allow yourself to become very discouraged. And yet if you do, you're really violating the law of internal spiritual growth. Only God will be concerned about such growth. We should not allow that to discourage us. I'll uh, be even a little bit more close to home in my own life, there has been a man who I have been witnessing to for almost a year now, once a week. He comes in and uh, speaks with me in my office every week. And I confess that I have gone home sometimes from some of those times together and I've said, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? I want this man so desperately to respond to the truth of that which we're talking about. And he seems at times so utterly close to just breaking down and saying, Yes, yes, my burden is so great. And there are those times when I think we're ever so close. And yet he walks away again, saying, I'm not willing to give up my sin. But I'll see you next week. And I say to myself, why does he keep coming back? Why does he come back? It's because God is doing something, and I don't need to know what it is. It's not up to me. Absolutely out of my control, and that's exactly where God wants it. It's the law of internal spiritual growth. And what God does while the farmer is asleep, the farmer himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. He's just talking about the fruition of it all. God is in control, we are not. We cannot manipulate the process. You know, we're all guilty, I'm sure, at times, at some point in our Christian life, 
of trying to manipulate the process. We try as much as we can to see friends or loved ones come to faith in Christ. We might do all kinds of mental and spiritual gymnastics to try to make it happen, and it just appears as though it doesn't happen. We become frustrated and discouraged, and we cannot. And then there are times when it seems as though we put very little effort towards someone else, but the very little effort, it seems, has been the very thing that God uses to bring them to faith in Christ. And we rejoice in that, but we also marvel at it. This is a very, very important and practical section of what Jesus is teaching us. And then, as if we were going to overemphasize the law of internal spiritual growth, as, as if we were going to make sure that it really never matters to the highest degree, he turns the tables on us and he gives us the law of external spiritual growth. Notice what it says. And he said, verse 30, How shall we picture the kingdom of God? How shall we picture the kingdom of God? What, what's it all about? What, what is the plan? What is the purpose? What is God doing? How is he going to respond in this kingdom teaching? Is it all going to be internal? Is it all going to be when we're at night going to sleep when he does his work? Are we going to see any evidences whatsoever? He says... Verse 31, the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger. Larger, how larger? Larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Say, what is he? What is he teaching? What is he saying? Well, as soon as we become comfortable with the idea that it's an internal issue, that it's something that only God can ultimately determine in the human heart, he says, there will be time for you to see the external manifestation of it. And he uses the analogy of the mustard seed. And he says that the kingdom of God is like at least in the botanical understanding of its own day, the smallest of all seeds. And it appears as though it is very tiny and very insignificant. And it surely starts that way. Yet, when it is sown, when there's faithfulness to the sowing of the proclamative Word of God, it grows up and becomes larger so that everyone will see it. You say, is he, is he sort of contradicting himself? What is he saying? What's his point? His point is this. As soon as someone might assume that the kingdom of God is so mysterious and so internal and so un or non-readily seen by the human heart, God will manifest the reality of what his kingdom enterprise is all about. And when he does, everyone will ultimately see it. When the mustard seed is cultivated properly, it grows up and it becomes larger than all the garden plants. You know what that tells me? That tells me that it's going to be visible. That it's going to be visible. You say, is it going to be visible for everyone? Are we all going to be able to see it? 
well, probably not until the end of the age, but at least there's going to be for us a joy and a comfort that our work, when we do it, will be manifested to us. We are going to be encouraged. We are going to see what God is going to do ultimately. We are going to see what awaits for us in our labors. In fact, when he talks about the mustard seed, it was so tiny, it was so minuscule, that it was the perfect analogy to give, and he gives it several times. He gives it in Matthew 13, he gives it here in Mark 4, he gives it in Matthew 17, he gives it in Luke 13, and in Luke 17. And it's the smallest seed. In fact, the word for small there is micros, from which, from which we get micro. Yet, he says, when it is sown, grows up and becomes larger. Megas, large, huge, you could even say. So large, in fact, that the plants form large branches, and so much so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. It means literally that the birds can find their homes by nesting. And what all of it means is that what is true of individual believers and their small internal growth will ultimately be corporately seen as the kingdom of God in all of its glory. In fact, I'll tell you exactly what he's referring to. Early in the gospel accounts, Jesus said to his own small flock, Fear not, little flock. Fear not. We're starting off small. We're starting off in a, in a little, small band of those who believe God the Father and His Word. But one day God is going to produce in us a mega crop. And it's going to be encouraging to all of us. You say, how encouraging is it going to be? It's going to be so encouraging that Revelation 7-9 says these words. And this is, this is so wonderful. I mean, right in the midst of someone believing that the law of internal spiritual growth is going to produce only that which God knows, God's going to come along and with that internal spiritual growth manifested on the outside so that it's going to be a great and wonderful crop. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says it this way. After these things I looked, John said, and behold, a great multitude, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. This is an incredible scene. This is the law of internal spiritual growth manifested on the outside. And it's going to be for us the opportunity to see in the end exactly what God had done. And what looks like a small mustard seed now is going to sprout up into a large branch, a large tree, a large movement, a great group of people for which God is going to receive all the glory. He says, they cry out with a loud voice. Can you imagine what this choir is going to be like? Talk about a hallelujah chorus. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might 
be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Boy, this is, this is what God is going to do in the end. We don't always have to be concerned about how it begins. And we may not also be concerned about how it's going in the middle. But believe me, as soon as someone might assume that it's going to be this little, small, insignificant movement of people, Jesus says, no, one day it's going to be every tribe and every tongue and every people that God plucks out those to whom he is sovereignly granting salvation and eternal life. And one day there's going to be a huge party. I mean, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be tremendous. And I know exactly what Jesus is doing. When he's teaching these disciples, when he's sharing with them, he's going to say, men, here's the way it's going to be. You're going to share the gospel. You're going to preach and teach about the kingdom. And one thing you have to guard against is that when you share this gospel message, some are going to respond and some are going to reject. Some that you assume are responding will ultimately reject. And some who are rejecting initially will ultimately respond. You cannot be concerned about such things. Just go to bed. If you've done your work, go to bed. Trust God. And it may appear to you as though something's not really happening, that the kingdom of God is not really moving forward. I mean, haven't you thought that? I've thought that. There are times when I'll think of my ministry or the ministry of the Word in the United States or in North America, and I see all of the compromise and all of the, the criticism of the, the church, and I see all of the people who are involved in all kinds of of sin and evil, and I think sometimes to myself, Lord, is, is there really anything going on? Is our country coming to the place where it's now not only a post-Christian nation, but now hostile to the gospel? Have you given up on it? Is this all there is? Lord, why is it sometimes when you announce to a group of people that you're having a, a person come in to to bring a message of the gospel or you're planning a seminar or you're even just inviting folks to church and it seems as though we ought to have this place packed Sunday morning and Sunday evening and we ought to be able to have everybody coming to hear the, the word of God proclaimed and Lord, why is it that only a few, it seems, show up? Why? Lord, is it, is it because we're, we're not trusting you? Is it because we don't have faith to believe you is because we're not really doing all that we can do or should do? Well, it may be some of that, but it's also the fact that if you sow the seed, if you preach the message as you should, then you go to bed. Don't worry about it. You allow God to do His work, and that's what motivates me to get up every morning. That's what motivates me to continue to preach and teach and counsel and shepherd, and whoever's there, that's who's there. You trust God and you motivate and you, you proclaim and you do all that you can and then you just leave it up to the Lord. He does His work. And I'm sure these disciples, when they preached the gospel to other people, He sent them out two by two and He said, some of them are going to respond to your message by, by really reacting against you and you're going to dust your feet off and you're going to go to another place. And there could be some discouragement there. But He says, when you go to bed at night, God's going to do His work. Unless you think, that only a few are going to respond. There's one day going to be what appears to be a small mustard seed 
the most insignificant seed there is that is going to sprout out to a harvest that brings out every tribe and people and tongue and nation for which God ultimately will receive a resounding praise. Folks, that's encouraging to me. It's tremendously encouraging. God has a plan. And that plan is moving inexorably forward. And I just want to be a part of that plan. And I want to just trust God with what He's doing and not be concerned about those things I cannot control. That frees me up to ministry. And it ought to free you up as well. And it should have freed up the disciples. They should have realized that there's a law of internal spiritual growth that is God's and God's alone. But there's also an encouragement from the Lord. And that is that one day we'll all be joining together in a mass praise of the Lord Himself. And we're all going to be greatly encouraged. And then there's a third law as we close tonight. A third law. And that third law says it this way. The law of God's sovereign disclosure. Verse 33. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. What was Jesus doing? Why was he speaking to them in parables? Well, you know, because we've already covered it in verses 11 and 12. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. In other words, Jesus is reiterating the same thing he'd mentioned in verses 11 and 12. God is sovereign, and he chooses those who will understand the message. And he carefully weaves and crafts his message as those who are receptive are able to hear it. But those who reject, those who don't respond, he veils that message so they won't hear it. God is sovereignly predisposed to disclosing the message to some and not to others. And that, my friends, is a theological fact. And it is beyond dispute. Some may kick against it and some may reject it, but it is as true as the Word of God itself is true that God has the sovereign right to bestow salvation on some and not to others, and we have absolutely no reason to reject that truth. None. None. Because God is the one who germinates the seed. He's the one who tells us to go to bed and then He goes to work. And when He sovereignly decides who responds and who rejects, He is the one who will ultimately receive the glory for it. You see, if salvation were up to me, if salvation were up to me and my message and the way I communicated it and the deftness with which I used my words and the ability that I had, if someone were responding on the basis of my technique, then God would not receive all the glory. I would receive some of it because it was the way I shared the message. It was the technique that I used. It was our program. It was the ministry. It was the way we did it. God says no. He will even take sometimes the opportunity to use non-Christians to bring people to faith in Christ. Won't he? 
God has the sovereign right to say yes or no to those who respond and reject. It was at once a judgment pronounced on those who are unprepared, but also an expression of divine mercy to those who are receptive. And it's all up to God. It's all up to Him. I appreciate so much those within the Christian church who emphasize the sovereignty of God. They're my brothers. It's a very small fraternity among us. But those who trust God by relinquishing what they assume God should do or not do are the ones who are truly effective in evangelism. Why? Because God has the sovereign right to bestow His truth on some and not others. Since we're all sinful, since we all deserve hell, since we all deserve judgment, are we going to reject God Himself when He says that out of the mass of sinful humanity I'll choose some? No. We rejoice in it. We rejoice in the grace of God. You, my friends, as I do tonight, rejoice that God has you here. We could be somewhere else, couldn't we? We could be somewhere else to such a degree that we are not receptive to truth at all. And that should glorify God to the maximum degree in your heart. We have the opportunity, my friends, to understand that what God does, He does for Himself, for His own glory, for His own power, for the, for the prominence of His own name. And we're just along for the ride. We're just along for the ride. But thank God for the ride. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, you're the King. You're the King eternal, immortal, invincible, God only wise. You're the one who sovereignly discloses your truth to some and not to others. You're the one who speaks through us so that when we are completely out of the process, you germinate the seed. You're the one who decides who responds and who doesn't. And we bless your name because of it. Thank you for this teaching that when we try to understand what our ministry is all about as these very disciples once did, it, begin, it, it can become so discouraging for us, Lord, if we were preaching and teaching and we're exhausting all of our efforts to see people coming and they don't come. And yet we're reminded that the kingdom of God is, is like a, a man who sows the seed and then he goes to bed. And lest we become concerned about the lack of apparent response and it appears as though the mass of humanity is, is not responding to the message. Billions of people who don't seem to be at all interested in the claims of Christ, it, it could become so discouraging. And yet those, those who are coming, they will one day be a, 
a tremendous example of what you did in our world. And we will bless your name for it. We'll spend eternity praising you for all of the things that you have done. Father, I'm reminded of Daniel's words. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the stature on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. That's talking about nations. They will be utterly destroyed, and it looks like no one is responding. Daniel goes on to say, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. We praise you, Father, that one day as we serve you in the kingdom, we will not be able to count like sands of the seashore all of those whom you sovereignly disclose the message of salvation. And we will be overwhelmed. It will be like a large tree in which all of us are pleased to be under its shade. Oh, Lord, allow us not to become discouraged when we pray and pray and pray for those around us, begging you to bring them to yourself, knowing that one day, even if that person doesn't respond, others like them will because of your sovereign choice. And we will be so encouraged. We'll see the end because we could not see the beginning. And we'll be so pleased to encourage our hearts that the plan works. It manifested exactly what you wanted it to do. Lord, thank you for encouraging our hearts today. Thank you for challenging us this morning and for tonight. May each and every person here, both morning and evening, respond by being ever more faithful to the truth that you've been so pleased to disclose to us. And may we respond not with a complacency, but with a challenge to make our lives count for Jesus' sake. In whose name we pray. Amen.